are at the Review of Democracy, the journal of the CEU's Democracy Institute, where we discuss some of the most exciting new publications. I am Ferenc Lotso. I am the co-head of the History of Ideas section, and I have the special pleasure of hosting Ari Joskowitz today. Welcome to the show, Ari, and thanks so much for joining. Delighted to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. We are thrilled to have you at the Review of Democracy. Ari Joskowitz is a historian of modern Jewish and European history, who is especially interested in the interplay between Jewish history and transnational minority politics since the Enlightenment. He is an associate professor of Jewish studies and European studies, as well as of history at Vanderbilt University in the United States. He also acts as the director of the Max Kate Center for European and German Studies at the same university. Eric Joskowitz's newest book, which we are here to discuss today, is titled Reign of Ash, Roma, Jews, and the Holocaust. It is a book that presents numerous insights and develops an intriguing interpretation. Now, your new book, Eric, offers a relational history that shows how Jews and Roma have become connected by proximate experiences, overlapping archival labor, and comparative perceptions of their fates. So as introductory questions of sorts, could I ask what motivated you to explore this relational history and how you would compare your approach and foci with previous scholarly ones? And then perhaps more specifically, what makes you rather suspicious towards some of the comparative approaches that have been previously used? Yeah, so I, I, I really got to the topic teaching the subject. And, and like so many others teaching it, I was very aware that there is a blind spot that I have. And this is the experience that I know other colleagues have too, with whom I've talked. We, we teach the Jewish Holocaust, which we've been trained to teach. And then we know there is this known unknown that we're supposed to insert. And the way to do this is you have one session sometimes, you have individual sessions on, on sort of that, that other genocide. Um, that seemed unsatisfying. Uh, but also, if, if, if you frame it at all, you frame it comparatively. Basically, students sign up for the Jewish Holocaust and then, uh, you know, you take what is known to them and, and, and use that to extrapolate in some form to, to introduce them to this other group that they barely know, that they very often have never heard of, in fact. So I I was fairly determined to coming out of that experience. I wanted to really write something <laughs> about both the Romani genocide and indeed the Jewish genocide. Um, and as I was doing that, if you just look at the history of how people have been writing about the subject, uh, it's very clear that the not just the writing about it, the, the debates that existed really were incredibly bruising for everybody. They were um, challenges to basically Romani activists and scholars and others who are aligned with them would, would argue right, that Jewish Holocaust scholarship is excluding them, especially Jewish, um, not just intellectuals, but also representatives would, would basically claim that, well, there's a fundamental difference here between these two genocides. So there was something comparative always in there already in the debates. And uh, the result was usually that there is an accusation of the other group is arguing in bad faith, that there is something, you know, it's, it's just political. So ultimately, what you can see is the comparative approach leads to no winners. <laughs> and so it's a lose-lose proposition. And, and ultimately, everybody, I felt, left uh, the, the debates uh, neither wiser nor, uh, nor was it productive in, in any terms if we think about um, how we want the, the histories of the marginalized to be told. Um, once I started looking further into its, this history, it also became clear that this, this tendency to compare is as old as the genocide. So basically, the victims started comparing already. I mean, it's incredibly important, actually, to look at these comparisons that people make historically to understand their position. So people in an existentially existentially threatened position are looking at, you know, if you want, across the met of metaphorical barbed wire fence to understand what their own situation is. So looking at these statements is very helpful for us to understand the situation of the person comparing the content of what they're saying, how victims are comparing themselves to others they barely know usually, is not helpful. So the comparison 
is helpful to understand certain things, but not other things. And that continues all the way to today. And I, I try to track this also through trials, for example, where we can just see that courts that try to compare the two genocides usually did that to exclude, uh, well, usually Roma from, from rights, um, from access to compensation by saying, well, they did not actually suffer like the Jews. So I became very skeptical of this. Ultimately, a relational history is my is in a part my solution to having uh, to seeing these issues with comparative history. And as I was writing it, I mean, I've I've, I've done relational histories before on, on, on other groups, but it, it really it became so clear to me that we cannot even start to understand the Romani genocide without understanding how its documentation came to be, without understanding how we know about it at all. And that knowing about it really comes out of the relationship with the Jewish efforts to document the Romani genocide. So it's the framing, it's the it's, it's, it goes to the raw empirical level, really, of what, what we know very often. So writing a relational history for me was, was in a sense, a precondition to understand the 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 Romani genocide, and it was in, in, in a fascinating and, and perhaps odd way, it actually reflects my own path, because I, I myself am trained in, Rome, in, in, in Jewish history, I have a, a Jewish background myself, and coming out of both, you know, a social position and intellectual position, there's a path that I had to, there's a relational path, in a sense, <laughs> that brought me to what I know about the, about the Romani Holocaust. Thank you so much. That's very intriguing. And I think you already touched on a number of points I would like to return to later on during this conversation. Let us perhaps continue with a, a point which is, I think, very significant in the book. You argue that entangled persecution revealed a longstanding existential gap between these two groups, even as it created individual opportunities uh, to bridge that gap at times. And you also state, and here I'm quoting from the book, that what ties Jews and Roma together is ultimately not so much a shared history of injustice, but a shared will to record and repair that injustice, end of quote. So could I ask you to explain the meaning of that rather crucial distinction you draw there? And more generally, what are some of the key elements in this entangled history and which significant differences between the two groups and their experiences would you care to highlight without thereby meaning to establish some kind of hierarchy of suffering, of course. Mm -hmm. So this this gets also at the at the basic arc of my narrative, um, which as as unlikely as it may seem is 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 in a sense a hopeful one. Because what I try to trace is is the history of two groups that, as far as I can tell, speaking broadly and in general terms, know very little about each other, who suffer next to each other, but not with each other during the Holocaust. And eventually move to a point where they still might not know a whole lot about each other, but where they are linked inextricably in their efforts to come to terms with what happened back then. And what happened back then really also defines how claims are made in the present, political claims, other social claims. So if we if we look at the difference between the two groups, I think there are certainly several in, in a sense, what I'm trying to to challenge is is the sense that outsiders are just outsiders, right? that there's a single outside, which would make two groups, you know, automatically <laughs> think of each other as as you know, automatically create solidarity, perhaps, but not even beyond solidarity, just knowledge of each other. To some degree, there are similarities, I think, in the way they are excluded. Some of them, there are differences in the way they are excluded. I think the emphasis on when when it comes to Roma. Um, with the, the, the label they've attached to them as gypsies it is, is that they are a social threat ver versus what really starts to move anti-Semitism uh, already in the 19th century, but especially in the 20th century, is the idea of Jews as a political threat, Jewish power, um, whether it is Jewish communist power, the Gito Comuna, or, or whatever, various constructs of capitalists and other <laughs> and communist uh, Jewish power, which which really becomes essential. But these differences, I mean, they, they structure Jewish-Romani relations to some degree in the sense that uh, Jews will very often share the anti-Romani sentiments of their environment. 
and uh, Roma will share the anti-Semitic sentiments of their environment, <laughs> simply because well, here they are simply unremarkable. However, when they think of each other, um, there, there is also an element where where we where this this, this idea of there's an inside and an outside, which we tend to have in, in sort of social science language, but also when it comes to just, I think, the social imaginary, the way it's, it's sort of po current politics sort of understates how much they would think about each other as on top and on the bottom. So if you want, not horizontal, but vertical, <laughs> and it comes out in testimonies all the time, um, even though that doesn't speak about any individual Jews who might, you know, it's not about the particular uh, earning situation of anybody involved, but but the expectations they have when they meet each other in anonymous ways was was very often uh, a particular who's on top and who's on bottom. And when that gets challenged, they, you know, strange things happen. Um, the most important difference really between Jews and Roma here is also self-organization, I would say. Coming out of a history of Jewish self-organization already is religious institutions and, and, and a sort of ethnicized religious group, but really transforming in the 19th century and in the early 20th century with political parties and transnational first philanthropic organizations and, and other political organizations. And all of this completely changes how Jews and Roma will face their persecution, even if it is similar, and how they will be able to frame it. And just as an example, um, I had to sometimes I had to think of my my grandmother, my paternal grandmother, who, uh, in a sense, if I said up and down, she grew up extremely poor in Vienna, you know, Galician uh, Jewish immigrants uh, to Vienna. Her father's a grave digger. The, they have, you know, they work. She, she starts working at the age of 14. They, every part of the narrative that I know about her would indicate that she's at the very, very bottom of, of that uh, urban society. She will face persecution. Uh, she will, in fact, be, be uh, deported from Vienna, um, not make it out uh, of the of the city. Uh, but the the means she can use to write letters, she will get a sponsorship to the United States. Uh, and I, I, you know, I have the documentary traces of certain efforts to get her out <laughs> that reflect the resources she has, and the opportunities that didn't pan out, but that were there. And after the war, again, she will have a Jewish community. And in this case, the joint, for example, this American Jewish organization um, that will help her. So it's not simply about the economics. There are profoundly different resources that uh, even impoverished Jews will have at their disposal. And those will matter a whole lot as then they try to seek justice after the war as well. So the narrative I'm telling really only makes sense once you understand this asymmetry between them, asymmetry of resources, and it's this asymmetry that actually entangles them. It's because Romani survivors will try to seek remedy that they will turn to Jewish organization for sometimes certification of an example of this, eventually help with documentation, legal representation, political representation, so there will the, the cooperation really comes out of this asymmetry. Um, so the differences between the two groups are fundamental for understanding what brings them together and why it's 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 indeed that difference that 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 ties them so close together, apart from the fact that they are indeed persecuted by the same perpetrators um, well, across Europe, Nazis and and their allies. Now that's a very illuminating answer, and I think we will want to uh, pick up on a number of uh, points there also uh, to make it somewhat more concrete later on. But let us perhaps discuss a slightly more general question first. Uh, you emphasize at one point that it is impossible uh, to compare the mass killings of Jews and Roma unless we first grasp how interconnected experiences, records, historical categories, and methods of collecting and disseminating information have actually determined what we know about each genocide. This is something you emphasized in one of your previous responses already. And you argue uh, on top of that, that if we fail to reflect on how people left traces of past injustices and how these traces are then passed down to us, we will easily reproduce the injustices of the past. And the chief subject of this book is indeed the conditions of knowledge production. You underline this in several places. So you are interested in the basic financial and material foundations, if you wish, in the economic history 
of information processing and retrieval as well. So first of all, why do you consider a knowledge production to be such a crucial question when, you, when exploring this relational history? And perhaps even more importantly, how could we at least try to avoid reproducing such, if you wish, epistemic injustices as scholars and more generally also as concerned citizens? Yeah, knowledge production is, of course, a, a fancy word, and one can theorize it and, and think about it. And there, there have been other books and articles that, that would use that term. Perhaps there's in a, indeed less a, a need to, to theorize it more instead to humanize it more. So, because I think there's a, there's a profound ethical dimension here, and, and in, in abstract terms, it's about how we know the suffering of others. So, as I was writing this and thinking about resources, I and mean, it's one of the things I really tried to do, write about something that that seems, you know, if you want hard nosed, right? You write about memory of genocide and you think of resources. That that there seems something impious about that. But precisely my aim was to argue that this question of resources, this question of, of knowledge, which sounds so abstract, sounds like a theory problem, is, is an everyday problem for everybody involved. Uh, and, and, and it ties simply into their ability to claim their human dignity um, and, 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 and claim their past, which is tied with that dignity. So I, in a sense, as, as, as far as writing strategy is also concerned, I try to to marry these two elements. Uh, I'll leave it to, to readers to to decide how successful it is, but also I, I, you know you might like one or the other better, but there's a intentionality there to bring together the stories of these of of, of the consequences <laughs> of not seeing recognition because of a profound flaw in the way knowledge is produced about you. <laughs> um, and to tie that into these stories into, yes, um, um, uh, an analysis, an analysis of something that is ultimately about, yeah, economic disparity, uh, other resources um, in terms of education, time, networks, etc. So the, the thing about resources is also that there is a circular logic to them, which is the, the better you document this historical injustice. Um, the more ability you have to mobilize resources to actually document it further. So this is where the, the challenge is to, to write a history, as far as I was concerned, that keeps in mind that there's an asymmetry here between Jews and Roma, but the Jews I describe are also struggling, profoundly struggling. Um, so so I, I, that's why I felt I needed to humanize all sides here um, when it comes to questions of knowledge production. Because we have such an easy time sometimes when it, you know, when it comes to asymmetry in knowledge production, this this often comes out of the context of colonialism, right? You have the colonized and the colonized. There's, there's such a nice black and white, <laughs> um, which may not be, be fully precise either, but but I think there's an underlying logic is, is so clear. Here we're dealing with two marginalized groups, and it requires a very different type of understanding of, of how we want to talk about these, these hierarchies in knowledge production. So the Jews and Jews themselves were struggling, and it is part of their success to delineate a new story that is called the Holocaust, to create a narrative that is not, for example, about the Great Patriotic War or about political victimhood and martyrdom, but to create a space where other stories can be told about the Jewish Holocaust. And that this achievement, which is an important achievement to actually let hundreds of thousands of people tell their story, at the same time creates new, new limitations that don't necessarily translate easily to the way others can then tell their story. And to just one concrete example that, that I found sort of where, where if you want conceptual framings come together with, with resources and, 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 and concrete experiences during the war is the history of the early camps that Roma and Sinti, so the, the German Romanese, would experience in, in Germany, in Nazi Germany, in 1936 mostly, this starts in 1935, in fact, it's a process where municipalities establish municipal camps on the outskirts of cities. Because they are municipal and are decentralized, they can take slightly different forms. Um, they are not part of the later SS camp system, although they can tie into the later process of, of deportation, 
surveillance that you need also for these deportations and, and, and the process of genocide. So they're very clearly part of the history of radicalization. And these German Romanis are put into these types of camp situations systematically as a racialized group before Jews are. Um, this is long before you have the mass arrests around the November pogroms, or called Kristallnacht. It's certainly before the ghettos. So you have a type, a new type of incarceration that happens at the outskirts of cities. Yet the way Jews perceived these was the way others did, which is it's an extension, to some degree was, an extension of long, older policies against Roma. There was something shockingly unremarkable about incarcerating these populations. As a result, Jews did not perceive this as part of the history of Nazi persecution. So they did not have to fear ending up in what was called the gypsy camp. And thus it didn't become part of the history of the earliest survivor historians, nor did it become part of the history of the people who turned to victim testimonies to overcome the limitations we had when we looked only at Nazi sources. So what we what we can see here is that you get something out of an individual experience. If you don't understand that particular history, that history of interactions, the history of these expectations that groups have towards each other, then you are indeed reproducing the injustices of the past. You make it unspeakable. And what's so challenging here is as part of an effort that otherwise is not just valiant, but crucial, important, right? These histories of the Holocaust that I'm also teaching that all leave out <laughs> these experiences basically are very often breakthroughs in the way we understand Nazism. I mean, you, you, want, you want to give them credit, right? And, and you want to give credit also to the ethical effort behind it, not just the intellectual effort behind it. So what I found so both challenging and fascinating about this topic is, is, is precisely this ethical dilemma that there is no that that you have that we have to think about knowledge production here, but it challenges us to do that in sophisticated ways, because if we don't use sophisticated ways to talk about it here in careful ways and precise ways to talk about it. Well, we, we also create new new injustices with with accusations, I think you, you end up writing a, a history of of the guilt of victims, which is not what I wanted to write. These are really essential points. Uh, we have been discussing relational history, the question of entanglement, uh, ethical dilemmas uh, in connection with uh, knowledge production. Let us perhaps uh, consider a number of concrete uh, facets. Uh, again, you present a lot of very rich, very intriguing evidence uh, in the book. You underline, for example, that testimonies regarding the Romani Holocaust reach us principally through the collection efforts and archives built by Jews to memorialize their own destruction in the first instance. And both the witness accounts themselves and then the institutions that house them, by their very nature, as you write, skew towards the story of the Jewish Holocaust first and foremost, and the Romani Holocaust only secondarily, incidentally, and partially, end of quote. Uh, now, Jewish Holocaust institutions have also become principal sites for knowledge production about Roma, I should add. And then similarly, you emphasize in the book how the legal innovations, documentary work, and new narratives that Jews brought to the courtroom had unexpected consequences for the Romani quest for justice as well, as these efforts, these Jewish efforts, simultaneously revealed and obscured certain aspects of Romani persecution. Uh, so would you be willing to discuss a few relevant examples regarding these major areas of testimony collection and also uh, courtroom cases? And what has it implied uh, that the stories of persecution of one group of people have been, so to say, nested within those of another? Yeah, but first let me perhaps just highlight how many of our sources are post-war sources. When we say sources of the Holocaust, we think of, well, we, we know that there are testimonies that are created later. We generally think of, you know, the, the immediate sources created during the era. Um, and post-war trials are crucial for all elements of, of, of the sort of process by which we get access to these sources. So what we read, how we read it, all of this is, is very much filtered through 
through trials. Um, if you just look at Holocaust scholarship, right? I mean, there, there is no Browning's ordinary men without prosecutors in Germany interviewing all these people, all the, all the perpetrators in this case. Um, so trials do do that. They also do a lot for victims. The, 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 there is the, especially these these big famous trials to which I, I I turn. They very often shape victims' sense of what type of justice is possible, and that's why I, I pick out three trials for my book. One is Nuremberg trial, which which creates this image of what could an international justice look like, right? International community here represented by the four allies sitting in judgment over the injustice perpetrated before. Um, and of course, this this fails to some degree, also in the sense that there it will never be such a trial again on Nazi crimes. It will be the only international military tribunal at Nuremberg is the only international trial, in fact, that will take place on Nazism. Um, so, but, but there is this image here. And Jews will latch on to that, but Roma as well. It's an image of, if we could have that, this is something we can aspire to. Then I look at the Eichmann trial, which is this promise of the nation, a, a nation, a state representing the victims, prosecuting and convicting a major perpetrator. Um, so this is also, it's something that Roma will look at. They, they will see this. And it's, it's if you're imagining what could justice look like for me, they can have that in their mind. It's basically, if we had a state, or if we had something similar, if any, in any form, there could be a form of representation for us where we could, you know, we could sit judgment over the people who tried to kill us or killed our relatives. What would that mean? And then finally, there's the Frankfurt Auschwitz trial that I look at. And here you have the promise of, of victim voices. So the Eichmann trial itself actually set up incredibly high bar of what victim voices mean because it was a didactic trial. In the Eichmann trial, you did not need testimony to actually get a conviction. It was part of communicating what the larger crime was, which um, like the, the trial runners and Ben-Gurion set up. So there's an expectation of, well, if we had these other trials, like Frankfurt-Auschwitz trial, which is, in this case, a trial in the country of the perpetrators, it sounds so abstract. In, in the case of these prosecutions, it really means that it's very often the same bodies that actually initiated prosecution, which is the criminal police very often for Roma and Sinti, that they were in charge of investigating, especially pre-trial, investigating what was going on. So you have, in that sense, a perpetrator country putting them on trial, but you have local justice. What can local justice look like? What can testimonies look like? And Frankfurt trial is, is actually a massive disappointment here because it turns out testifying under cross-examination um, is is not something that is uh, that is helpful for victims that it is it is traumatizing re-traumatizing it is not actually an experience that that gives them power so what I what I tried to do um, looking at this is also what these trials set up in terms of documentation and how they set up possibilities and and indeed failures so the Nuremberg trial, I'll, I'll just perhaps use that as my example. Um, there's a big debate about what the Nuremberg trial does and doesn't do in terms of the Jewish Holocaust. What, like, basically, is it properly discussed or not? And, and it depends as so often on the standards you want to use. Clearly, what is happening there has very little to do with the way a textbook today would discuss the Holocaust. But in fact, it does set up a whole lot. And as one scholar noted, no other crime against another racialized group is discussed in as much detail. So you have a whole lot of talk about it. But for reasons I won't go into here, the way the prosecution is also set up, the, the four counts of the indictment, it doesn't become the, the Holocaust is not on trial. One of the accusations that, that scholars have made, one of the critiques really is that what Nuremberg sets up is an intentionalism. This really very naturally for a war crimes trial against the major perpetrator, which has to prove intention, which is the whole, as, as a trial has to do. Um, it shows intention here top down that yes, takes away some of the responsibility from people who are receiving the orders. And it doesn't fully match the way we today, at the dawn of debates on uh, 
functionalist versus intentionalist reasons for the Holocaust. So I think today we have some middle ground. Most of us are somewhere in a middle ground between a pure intentionalism that emphasizes the premeditated nature of the crime and a, a radical functionalism that emphasizes purely the iterative nature of experimentation. So we're somewhere in between. Clearly, the Nuremberg trial is, is veering in the direction of intentionalism in a way that actually obscures a lot of guilt as, as well on, on the lower level. What intentionalism didn't do, however, is harm the victims and the victim's idea of justice. Because as far as the, for example, the, all these, these Jews sitting in DP camps looking at the trial are concerned, they had a lot to say about that trial, which didn't have proper testimony. It's mostly a document trial. Uh, there are a lot of complaints. Um, the intentionalism was clearly not one of them. The idea that Hitler wanted to kill us, as did his other upper-level henchmen, was not. That, that was <laughs> that was exactly how they saw it as well. Um, and intentionalism allowed victims to articulate a very clear crime, a crime with an intention, an implementation that allowed you to make claims, right? So the way Nuremberg Court established intentionalism was by a series of documents, which they also published, reconstructing the history of genocide from the party program of the Nazi party in 1920, and then sort of in incremental steps, uh, looking also at Der Stürmer, the, one of the Nazi party's uh, publicist outlets, and the, the editor Streicher was also on trial. So looking at highly anti-Semitic articles and sort of moving from intention, documents that say we want to do this or that, that somehow are propaganda, moving to laws and eventually to, to documents that illustrate the orders for killing. Um, this would become a, a standard in courts. So when courts would look at compensation, they would accept this and they would try to just, you know, if Jews are claiming compensation there are lots of things that can go wrong you need you need medical uh proof for certain forms of compensation uh for restitution you need other types of evidence when it comes to property ownership etc there, there's so many things how the how the state tried to make sure they try to keep people out of compensation but the the fundamental idea that there is a crime is there the same intentionalism could be used against roma Precisely because the same type of documentary trail wasn't there and was not established at Nuremberg. So what courts did is basically say, well, for Jews, I had these statements in the party program. Where's that for Roma? I'm not seeing that. That wasn't racial persecution. So the crucial thing here, I mean, what we understand now, I believe, is that that there are well, also we have, I think, diversified our understanding of the Jewish Holocaust and its many roots, from neighbors killing each other to, to multiple institutions or multiple levels being involved. It's not as much of a top-down story. That helps us actually reframe also the Romani genocide. But what we, what we can see is this intentionalism. So the, 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 what Nuremberg did for Jews was crucial. You had, in this case, documents published by the U.S. government out of these trials, that is the International Military Tribunal and the subsequent trials that, that the Americans really ran, um, you had all these documents and all the early volumes on the Holocaust will draw on these because if you, you need certified, you need authorized documentation basically to show what happened there. So all the later, these early historians will draw on these and later historians too. We're all indebted to the work that researchers, translators, and others in Nuremberg did to document all these crimes. All of this proves not just not as productive for Roma, but very often outright unproductive for their quests for justice. In the book, I have much more to say also about that, how the Eichmann trial does something similar, and, and also Frankfurt trial, Auschwitz trial does something similar, and eventually what we get from, from international criminal litigation. The, the main point I want to conclude with here is that it's not so much that Roma were not discussed at trials, because that's that there's something trivial, trivial about this. And I don't think you can write that much about absence simply. I mean, to some degree, it's true. But the mere absence, I think, is not as surprising as their strange presence very often. The way they are present, but never manifests in a way that can become productive for them. 
Um, so it's it's in part that that I try to really demonstrate in a chapter that I also have on on the trials. Now there's a lot there to think about. Uh, you also mentioned earlier that perhaps unexpectedly, this is a hopeful book. And uh, in a sense, it's uh, the book is about unexpected success. But of course, in order to get to that unexpected success, which we still want to uh, discuss uh, later on, uh, there are a number of failures and a number of advances, right? And I wanted us to talk a bit about that. You just mentioned uh, failure uh, in, in your in your most recent uh, response, and indeed, certain chapters of the book uh, focus on some relative failures uh, through which you aim to reveal the conceptual and also practical challenges of post-war efforts to record uh, the persecution of the Roma. Uh, you also analyze work done largely by Jewish historians and by others writing with the support of such institutions uh, that brought to light the stories uh, of the Holocaust's Romani victims and there, thereby helped establish the basis uh, of a more egalitarian alliance, which we see today. And again, we'll talk about that uh, later. So could I ask you to discuss some of those efforts that you consider rather failures, and then also some of those significant advances or even breakthroughs in later years? Yeah. So let, let me perhaps start with what are some of the root causes, the root assumptions that go into, in, in, into precisely these failures to account for the Romani genocide? Um, and I think we we can also I think the failure one one can agree on just because there is basically no no information to be had about the Romani genocide and this is in part what I what I tried to show I have a I have a chapter that starts uh, and ends with with a book that was never written by uh, Gerald uh, Reitlinger who wrote actually one of the earliest the earliest successful survey history of the Holocaust what he calls the final solution. And he, he published this in 1952. It became a standard work uh, really in Holocaust studies. Um, he publishes a second work uh, on the on, on the SS. And I, I trace what happens to his attempt to write a history of the Romani genocide in the late 1950s. So as is his third historical book, really, on the subject. Um, and you can see how he fails because there are no archives there. And, and you can see it in his correspondence, how, how he fails, which I find fascinating. And there are several other examples of this, uh, of, of people who try to write to sources they think, uh, people they think can help them and who, who, who fail in their quest. And one of, another person is Raphael Lemkin in his attempt to document all the genocides he can, he can think of also really wants to write about the Romani genocide, which he introduces actually as the paradigmatic example of a genocide uh, in this first iteration when he speaks of, when he, when he can get genocide uh, discussed in a, in a trial and used in a trial setting. And in Nuremberg, it's, it's Poles, Jews, and, and gypsies, he says, um, who are the, you know, the typical victims of Nazi genocide. So he tries to write an, a book as well, and ultimately, all he can really produce is a heading, a, a, a title heading and, and a blank page. So that we, we do have the fundamental failure to simply produce anything as well, to some degree. Then we have the failures that come from the attempt to talk to the victims at hand. So these are some of the heroes, I think, of today's scholarship, because um, there's, there's an understanding that victim testimony, the relevance of victim testimony was slow in coming as time proceeded, uh, progressed from, from the Holocaust. Uh, so originally people cared about perpetrator testimony quite a bit. You know, what does Hess say? What does the commander of Auschwitz say? That was very interesting also to a lot of victims. Uh, what other victims said was a bit unclear. So we, these are our heroes of, of people who understand the, the voices from below, some of the earliest people going into the field, interviewing others. Um, David Boulder is one of these famous people who was, you know, with a big magnetic tape in 1945, 46, uh, travels through Europe and, and, and tries to, to, to put a, a microphone on that massive um, magnetic tape recorder in front of people to, to record uh, people's, uh, people's voices and people singing even. But what we can see here is that these people who are interviewing Jews, what I trace is, is how they sometimes learn that there's something to be asked about Roma, but what they don't do is speak to Roma, 
what they do is speak to Jews. And for the reasons I already described, which is also there, these two groups don't understand that much about each other. Um, the way Jews frame their own experiences doesn't match the way Roma would frame their experiences, or and it doesn't, it's not helpful for understanding their experiences. Because of all of this, just turning to Jewish victims does not actually help you resolve anything about the experiences of Roma. It tells you more about the experiences of Jews if you ask them about Roma, but it tells you nothing about the experiences of Roma. So what we're seeing is, is a failure of talking to Roma. Um, and to some degree, what I trace is, is also how eventually it's, it's really only by the 70s, 80s that, that you get a, a dialogue also between these people, very often Jews, who care about the Romani genocide. And Roma, so and Romani representatives to that, that to have that as a dialogue that really starts to happen on an individual level only in the 70s and 80s, and not before that. So you you have a profound inability here to conceptualize because you have an inability to talk ultimately. Um, I think if we're talking about failures and framings, I, I also think something I, I don't mention as much in the book, but that I that I notice when I when I discuss these subjects with colleagues. When I when I discuss also, I had other articles that were sort of on sensitive issues in Romani history that I wanted to discuss. And I, and I talked to not just people in Jewish history, but for example, people in German history, that it's hard for a lot of historians to understand what the stakes are for groups that are, are really profoundly marginalized and dehumanized. What the stakes are in claiming your history so, so I, I think that is that is part of what made these debates so callous, as if it were an abstract comparative debate that we could have, right? It's like basically, tell me your my numbers, you tell me your numbers. When, how dramatic was that really? What was the percentage here or there? And all of this is is based on on a profound misunderstanding of what the intellectual stakes are. The intellectual stakes are entangled, are, are tied up with, it, with the ethical stakes, the existential stakes for people really who, whose humanity is profoundly denied um, and was denied and, and sometimes still remains denied. So I, I think a lot of the, the inability to think in new ways comes from the sense that why would we think in new ways? I've come to profound new understandings of the Holocaust, you know, a, a smart rereading of the sources this way or that way. Why does this, you know, but so and and and, and Roma becoming a second thought. So this this is in part what, what happened also in the debates in the 1990s. This is how I read, for example, the debates around around Yehuda Bauer, who was is a major scholar of the Holocaust, who was in debates with Romani scholars and you know, how systematic was the genocide, et cetera. And, and Yoda Bauer was, was you know, leaning more towards the intentionalist side, I would say, and had stakes in, 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 in emphasizing the, the ideological premeditated nature of, of the crime. And so it's consistent. What he says, is, I think, is, is come about the Romani genocide is consistent with how he thinks <laughs> about, about Nazi genocide. Um, but what, what didn't click in a sense is why are these people challenging me so profoundly on this um and and i mean i i would challenge his his his, his conclusions as well but I, I think there's there's a profound way in which the failure to account for the romani genocide comes from the failure to talk which is tied in with the failure to understand what marginalization really means and all of this then ties in as well with with questions just of 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 resources that you make available actually to people to to document the things that they then want want to argue. So I think it in a sense here, right, there's there's a meta level of what what knowledge does <laughs> to the debate about other knowledge, if you want. The the inability to understand, to know the suffering of others makes it harder to actually understand <laughs> other elements <laughs> of that suffering of others. The, the inability to understand their marginalization, to engage with with, with 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 others actually made the intellectual debates um, to some degree vapid and 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 an exercise in in something that's both abstract and injurious and damaging to another group. And I think this is exactly the tradition that uh, your book aims to break with. Uh, and of course, you're not alone uh, making this uh, this effort, making this attempt uh, today. 
Um, indeed, in the conclusion, uh, you provide quite a complex and quite a nuanced picture uh, of the situation in the early 21st century. Uh, you describe an unlikely success story, as I mentioned earlier, when it comes to uh, Romani-Jewish relations. However, you also emphasize very clearly that the relations are far from uh, symmetrical uh, today, right? Those discrepancies are certainly uh, with us. Uh, full reciprocity uh, remains uh, unlikely. Uh, you mentioned, for example, which I found very striking, how acts of solidarity uh, on the side of Jews are often accompanied by demands for justice on the side of uh, Roma people, right? There you see a, a certain a certain discrepancy. Uh, you also state uh, early on uh, that this is a book that's very much a product of this burgeoning engagement that it that it tries to describe and it describes so well. Uh, and it is also an attempt, the way you see it, to inspire a new kind of dialogue about the opportunities and also the challenges of forming and really making such unequal alliances flourish. And I think those uh, statements in the book beg uh, a number of closing questions, if I may. First of all, what has changed in our uh, memorial culture uh, in recent decades uh, in your in your understanding? And then which successes and which shortcomings would you perhaps like to highlight when it comes to the current situation? And last but not least, what kind of new dialogues would you like to see unfold uh, in the in the near future? What what I think changed is is the underlying political dynamic that uh, allowed these debates about Holocaust and uniqueness to really flourish. Um, I think these debates are to some degree still with us, even though much much less. I think when I when I bring up these questions of the Holocaust and uniqueness in the classroom, I, I find most of my students don't really know what I'm talking about and don't understand the real stakes here. And in part, it has to do with a massive shift over the past, and it depends on where you discuss this, but I think over the past 20 years, let's say, debates about uniqueness of the Holocaust and these 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 clashes about what is the Romani genocide, what status does it have, how should it be included in Holocaust institutions, say, and in Holocaust research projects. I associate this mostly with the 90s and then they, they exist into the 2000s and, you know, the individual flare-ups. What changes today are that that what Jewish institutions are, are facing is, is this sense that they are the establishment. That when it comes to the Holocaust, that this is, of course, a massive narrative of victimhood, but that it clashes. There's basically a cognitive conflict here with what how Jews are otherwise discussed in society, where the accusation, especially for Jews who present as white, is mostly actually that they are privileged. Now, how you, wherever you stand to these debates and however you like these debates, these are the realities of what, what, what Jewish institutions are facing and what they're trying to counter. And the result is, is really that I think Jewish institutions are very eager to reach out, but they're also selective in how they can reach out. Because since the 1980s and well, perhaps since the, the first intifada, they are also quite aware that a lot of alliances will fall apart rapidly again when uh, the pesky problem of Israel-Palestine comes up. So there are basically topics uh, where, you know, your good efforts to, to create uh, coalitions of the marginalized clearly fall apart because you're not actually accepted as one of the marginalized. I think the discussions of the, the Romani Holocaust and the inclusion of the Romani Holocaust have a lot to do with the fact that these things don't tend to destabilize relations with Romani organizations. That's, they could come up. I don't know. I, I can't, I don't know the future. Um, but what happened in the past, at least, is that it was actually a surprisingly comfortable coalition and alliance for Jewish institutions to have. Yes, it means sharing resources. Yes, uh, it means that the, the sort of most purest version of the Nazi genocide was unique. Uh, you, you have to adapt that. Still Nazi genocide that is unique, actually, <laughs> if you want. You still have that as your mission. Um, so what I'm seeing is that, that there is a, there's a realignment that just makes political sense. And saying that things take political sense doesn't mean that they're not sincere and profoundly held. This, is, this goes back to what I said earlier about resources and, and, and human, humanizing things as well. The people who are 
who are living this realigned reality are deeply invested in these new coalitions. Um, precisely because it makes people talk, precisely because it makes people understand each other's situation. So what I am seeing increasingly are precisely these the, this this sense of of, of similarity of, of a coalition that works that that doesn't derail as quickly, even though anything can derail, but tends to work better. So I think it has a lot to do with the politics of the present. Um, when people bring in the politics of the present and to talk about the Holocaust, I think it's it's usually to be cynical. Um, so what I'm trying to do here is 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 do that, but without without the cynicism. I mean, it, it's, we, it's it requires both realism and respect for each other's sincerity. Um, but so that's that's what I'm seeing um, happening. Uh, that's that's also how I've experienced actually so far the reception of my book. Again, there's, I couldn't say more about that given who I am and. <laughs> And, and and why Jewish institutions are, might might be responding in particular ways, but in general, I think there's a very different reaction that we would have seen 30 years ago um, to 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 discussions of Jews and Roma. Um, so what I what I want to see more of, yeah, is I think institutional dialogue and a dialogue that that involves the other really, and and the only way this will work is by knowing how these histories have already been entangled, and thus what the responsibilities are. So it's not about guilt. I don't think any party needs to enter this in the sense of guilt. I do think that they need to enter the conversation with a sense of responsibility. And, and I think that is that is a way forward. Um, and, you know, different Romani representatives, communities, individuals have well, different ideas on how they want to talk about, about history, their own institutions, inclusion in Jewish uh, ceremonies and, 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 and institutions. It's, it's, it's a conversation, a, a negotiation, but engaging in that conversation with the understanding of, of that history, I think will make, uh, will, will make a huge difference. Thank you so much for that really substantial and really quite profound and also encouraging last uh, response and for the entire conversation today, Ari. Thank you so much. Uh, the pleasure has been all mine. I have been discussing with Ari Joskovitz today, whose essential new book is titled Reign of Ash. Roma, Jews, and the Holocaust. It's a very important and very fascinating subject. I think this is the book that shows just how important and fascinating this topic is. It has just been released. I hope you have enjoyed our conversation about some of the key questions raised in this new monograph. Until the next conversation here at the Review of Democracy.